Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Today I'm speaking with Stephen Fleming. Stephen is a professor of cognitive neuroscience at University College London and is the author of the recent book, Know Thyself, The Science of Self-Awareness. And self-awareness is the topic of today's conversation. We talk about the relevant neuroscience, the relationship between self-knowledge and intelligence, the evolution of metacognition, error monitoring, theory of mind, mirror neurons, deception and self-deception, false confidence, probabilistic reasoning, where metacognition fails, cognitive decline, those places where self-knowledge might be counterproductive, and other topics. Anyway, I found it quite interesting, and I hope you do as well. And now I bring you Stephen Fleming. I am here with Stephen Fleming. Steve, thanks for joining me. Thanks very much, Sam. It's an honor to be here. So uh, you've written a very interesting book on perhaps the most interesting topic. The topic is self-knowledge, self-awareness. The book is Know Thyself, The Science of Self-Awareness. But I'm really eager to talk about um, the whole sweep of this. But um, before we jump in, perhaps you can summarize your your background uh, academically and intellectually. Sure, yeah. So I'm currently a professor of cognitive neuroscience at University College London. And I guess, I mean, I've always been interested in the sciences. Um, I left high school without really knowing what I wanted to do, wanted to be a musician. So I didn't apply to university like all my friends were doing. And instead, I took a, a year off back then and worked in an office job. And it was while I was commuting that I started reading popular science books on cognitive science. That's partly why I was also so interested in writing one myself when I got the opportunity. And Interesting just found it absolutely fascinating. I had like no idea that there was a science of the mind out there. We didn't get exposed to that at school, at high school. So I then became fixated on doing experimental psychology. I went to Oxford and I was lucky there to have as a tutor, a guy called Paul Lazapardi, who works on blind sight, this bizarre neurological condition of consciousness. And it was Paul who convinced me that there was a real rigorous science out there of consciousness and that it was possible to do, you know, good neuroscience on this. And I then went on to University College London to do a PhD in neuroscience with, and that was co-supervised with the psychologist Chris Frith and the neuroscientist yeah. Ray, Ray Dolan. And Both great people. I, I haven't met either, but uh, I've obviously read their papers. Yeah, no, it was, uh, it was a fascinating time. And in Ray's lab, he was focused on um, studying decision-making using reinforcement learning models. And in my PhD, I mostly focused on using brain imaging to study decision-making. But on the side, I was continuing to kind of have this off-on love affair with consciousness, which has kind of continued with me now. And I, I guess towards the end of my PhD, I realized we could start applying some of the tools of decision-making research to also study how we make second-order decisions. So how we think about and reflect on how we're performing on various tasks. And that's what psychologists refer to as metacognition or thinking about thinking. And but at the time there there was a you know a, a long tradition in psychology of studying this this topic, but very few people were working on the neuroscience of metacognition. 
And I had the opportunity in a sense to get in on the ground floor of that. And we ran a couple of early brain imaging studies looking at the relationship between prefrontal function and metacognition. I then went off to New York to do a postdoc at NYU to build learn how to build computational models of metacognition and then in 2015 moved back to to London and UCL where I now lead my own research group studying metacognition and consciousness. Nice, nice. Well, um, we should uh, dispense with one possible source of confusion at the outset because I'm not sure how familiar you are with with my work, uh, especially on the topic of mindfulness, meditation, the, the nature of the self. And uh, so I'm someone who's given to say uh, at fairly regular intervals that the self is an illusion or, or at best a construct. You know, at bottom, it's not what it seems, but that's a very specific use of the word self. And when we talk about self-awareness, I think we're talking about something that is far more capacious than the, the sense of subject-object perception, which is really the the linchpin of of the self that you know, I would argue that mindfulness ultimately reveals to be illusory. Uh, so I mean, we're, we're talking about uh, you know, the whole person much more often than we're talking about the sense that there's a subject in the head independent of experience. So when we're talking about self-awareness, there's, you know, this, this is not in violation of anything I have said about the status of, of the, the self as subject in, in other contexts. And I mean, I'm happy to talk about the self with you as well, but I just wanted to try to clarify that for people because there's going to be something I can hear in the in the heads of many listeners. If the self is an illusion, what could we possibly mean by self-awareness? Well, self-awareness extends to everything else we can reflect on and be aware of in a kind of second-order way that relates to our experience. You know, our performance errors, the thing that we just experienced a moment ago you know, lapses in memory, or, I mean, let's just, let's just dive into the topic. How do you describe metacognition at this point? Yeah, no, I think that's a really useful background to have in place. Because I, I am talking about something distinct here to the philosophical notion of self, which is a complex object. And here I'm talking about something more practical, something more functional, which is this capacity to be aware of our traits, our skills, our personalities, our behaviors, and in some sense, see ourselves like others see us. And we can study this in various ways. We can look at in very simple tasks, how people realize they've made errors or how they're able to estimate their confidence in their skills and abilities and so on. And it's something that we often, I think, just take for granted. But the reason I find it so fascinating is because when you think about it for a moment, it is a kind of bizarre and wonderful feature of the human mind that we can, some, in some sense, think about how our own minds are working. And this has very practical consequences. So you, the reason we write a shopping list when we go shopping is because, in some sense, we realize that our memory is not going to be good enough to hold all those items in mind. And similarly, when we start to realize our sight is failing, for instance, it's not because we think the outside world has become blurry, it's because we realize that there's something in our perceptual systems that needs fixing with new glasses and so on. So it's this kind of practical reflective thought that's not always obvious from the outside, but it's something that we can study with the tools of psychological science. Yeah, yeah. And one thing is increasingly clear 
is that um, other people, uh, and now even algorithms, can know what we're like better than, than we can, certainly on specific topics. As I remember a friend once told me a, a story from a board meeting where he was, uh, he was engaged in a very stressful conversation with the group, and someone in the meeting commented on how emotional he was getting, and, and you know, it just seemed like they might want to take a break, and, and he denied being overly emotional. And, and someone at, at, around the table suggested that he bring his attention to the sensations at his upper lip, and the moment <laughs> he did that, he burst into tears. Wow! I mean, apparently, his lip had been quivering as though he were about to—he was about to burst into tears—and <laughs> it was noticeable to to the, those in the room. And you know, it, it, you can imagine just how much can be known about any one of us now based on our Google search history, say, or you know, anything we do with our attention online. And when you, when you look at the database of knowledge that is the profile of each of us that is accruing in somewhere in the cloud and what might be gleaned from that when you compare it to everything else you know every other profile of every other person you know just the statistical knowledge there and the capacity to predict the next thing we'll find captivating yeah it, it, it is exactly what you said to take the view of oneself that another person could have opens the the door to you know, sometimes mortifying, uh, you know, at minimum interesting facts that are not uh, necessarily visible or, or salient when one's simply living one's life and having one's experience. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting, the example you mentioned of the person in the boardroom, because I, I feel like I have, through studying metacognition, I've become more attuned in my own life to how I might have this fading out of self-awareness at certain moments and it's something that my wife has said to me on occasion when things are stressful with grant applications or whatever that I just become you know a horrible person to live with mm. on a, a for a few days at a time and I used to deny this completely I was like I don't feel like anything's changing my behavior and I now come to realize that how could I have possibly known at that time I mean there's a whole interesting story there about stress and how it is detrimental for metacognition itself. So you have this kind of paradoxical situation where the times when you might need to be aware of how your behavior is becoming, uh, causing problems for others, those are the times when metacognition and self-awareness might actually be most impaired. Um, but I have definitely, I think, become a bit more uh, willing to accept in my own life that those fade-outs of self-awareness can happen, and they do happen probably more often than I'd like to admit, and I then have this stronger tendency to trust what, say, my wife is saying about my behavior and to try and correct it accordingly. Yeah. Yeah. So l let's um, build up this picture of metacognition. I mean, the, the, the simplest or, or most common definition I think one encounters is the, the phrase knowing that you know, right? There's the knowing of things, there's the cognition piece, and then there's the self awareness that you have the knowledge, and this extends to knowledge in all of its forms, so the, you know, semantic knowledge. If you ask me, could you name more than four states in the United States? I could say yes to that. I, I, I could be sure 
about my knowledge there without actually going through the exercise of listing any states. Uh, so I have this more abstract understanding that you know my knowledge bank contains at least you know four state names, and so it is with so much of what we know. And of course, we can be wrong about that. We can actually think we could uh, produce a specific concepts or uh, memories and when asked actually fail but generally speaking there's some um, there's a representation of what uh, is in our storehouse of knowledge that doesn't require us to actually go into the storehouse in order to cash it out in that moment and so it is with you know even procedural learning or, or you know motor memory so again do you know how to ride a bike you know could you raise your hands over your head we'd be surprised to f- have our confidence about that disconfirmed uh, if we tried. But it's, um, how would you build up the layers of what we're calling metacognition here? What, what is it beyond this representation to oneself that one knows certain things? Yeah, I, I think that's um, a very nice way of thinking about it, this, this notion that there are representations that go beyond knowledge. And one analogy that I sometimes use, it's not a perfect one because it's not how things actually work, but you can think of metacognition as in some sense being like the index of a book. And the index usually points you to the right page in the book, but if the index maker has got things wrong and the book's self-knowledge has in some sense failed, then sometimes there will be an index entry that does not correspond to the the actual text in the book. And I think we can you know, start to build up a picture of how metacognition works by thinking of the brain as effectively a hierarchical system and that it does not only encode information in memory, it does not only perceive and, you know, represent things at a first order level, but it also has what we think of as higher order representations. And we think parts of association cortex like prefrontal and parietal cortex are important for this that they it builds representations at a more abstract level of how the system is working and i think that's you know that's probably the best way of conceptualizing metacognition at a cognitive systems level uh, that we have at the moment and then we can obviously take this in many different directions in terms of specific topics within that mm. broader umbrella term of metacognition and how does it interact if it interacts at all with the variable of intelligence so there's i think the there is an initial intuition that we have that intelligence is in some sense allied with having good awareness of what we know and don't know but as ever it turns on our definition of intelligence and empirically what we've found perhaps surprisingly in many of our studies is that when we measure metacognition in the lab, and maybe it's useful to say a few words about how how we actually do that. Mm -hmm. So typically the way we can quantify your metacognition and put a number on it in a particular task is by asking you to assess your performance on a number of trials So of the task. So we might give you a memory task, and after every decision about whether this object was on the list that you're asked to remember or not, we'd ask you how confident you were about that choice. Or we might give you a task involving perceptual judgments and then ask you how confident you are about each choice. 
And the key thing we're interested in there is not only your performance on the memory and the perception task, but also how your confidence tracks your performance. So intuitively, if I have high confidence when I'm right and lower confidence when I'm wrong, that's what we call having good metacognitive sensitivity or metacognitive ability. And what we found in those studies, now we've done studies of thousands of people, is that performance on classical IQ tests is not a great predictor of metacognitive uh, ability. And this lines up with some other work in um, using other measures of metacognition, like whether we tend to be fooled um, by initially intuitive answers without reflecting on them. So these are things like the cognitive reflection test that taps into more system two than system one thinking. Mm. And again, there in the literature on that kind of test, it does seem to be independent of classical IQ measures. And I think one way of thinking about this on a very broad brush basis is that the kind of neural and cognitive resources that we bring to the table to solve reasoning problems, which is effectively what an IQ test is tapping into, is uh, th- those are distinct to, or somewhat distinct to the kinds of neural and cognitive resources involved in reflecting on our performance in those tasks, including potentially even in an IQ test. So you, in theory, and we have done a little bit of this, you can measure someone's metacognition about their performance on a test of intelligence. So in a sense, both on a theoretical basis, but also, also on an empirical basis, we think metacognition and IQ come apart in interesting ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can you can see that metacognition and performance have to break apart because you would have perfect metacognition if you were confident that you had utterly failed to perform. Yeah. If in fact you yeah. had utterly failed to perform, you could just go through life failing again and again. And and as long as you're aware that it's just one failure after another, well, then your your metacognition score is perfect. That's that's right. That's exactly right. So, and I say, I kind of make the throwaway line in the book that metacognition is often most useful when we're doing stupid things, because that's when, you know, we need to be aware of making errors. So, no, that's absolutely right. What picture do we have based on um, evolutionary psychology of metacognition? How do we think this might have evolved? And, and we, you know, what are the benefits of being able to represent to oneself the likelihood that one has made an error or, uh, I mean, that's obviously only one slice of metacognition, but this second order reflection, what it, how does this fit in, in the context of evolutionary psychology? So one starting point for getting at that question is to look at how and whether we share metacognitive capacities with other species. And there has been an interesting line of work for many years in comparative psychology looking at tests of confidence and uncertainty and error monitoring in animals. And the general picture there is that in many species, you can have pretty sophisticated tracking of confidence, tracking of errors, and so on. So there's been some lovely work in dolphins and monkeys and rats uh, showing that they pass confidence tasks similar to the ones that we use with humans. But that, I think, is um, is a type of metacognition that occupies a different space to explicit self-awareness in humans. And the reason that we think that's the case is because when we look at child development in humans, that kind of implicit metacognition, the ability to track confidence and 
monitor errors, that seems to be in place relatively early in life. So there's been some beautiful and heroic studies done by Securides Lab in Paris showing that babies as young as 12 months, I think even younger than that in some of their studies, show signatures of error monitoring both in EEG activity and also in their persistence for searching for particular objects. So when you use their persistence of searching for a toy, for instance, as a marker of confidence, then you get all the same metrics of metacognitive sensitivity that you can get out of the, the, the adult data. Now, that seems to be that kind of lower level ability to self-monitor seems to be in place quite early in life in humans. But when you actually, when kids become verbal and you then ask them about their confidence and about whether they know something or don't know something, then as I'm discovering at the moment with my two and a half year old, their metacognition is terrible. They think they know things they don't know. They fail to you know, realize they need to ask you about something and so on. So it's not until the age of around three or four that children start to gain this explicit self-awareness of what they know and don't know. And we think that in studies in adult humans, that kind of more explicit level of self-awareness is related more to theory of mind or the ability to think about other people mm. as well as to think about ourselves. So I'm not sure if that answered your question, but hopefully it got us started along that line. Yeah, well, that does um, neatly differentiate us from other animals, even other primates. When you um, imagine that, the, that our, an awareness, a, a comprehensive awareness of our own mind is uh, of a piece with with what, what, what we call theory of mind. It's, it goes by other names like mind reading and mind sight, and, but it's the ability to represent the mental states of others such that you can recognize that other people can have, you know, rather often, different beliefs and desires and expectations than you do, and they, and they can be at odds with what is in fact true of the world. And Obviously, the famous test of this is to set up a, a little playhouse with some dolls and and uh, ask kids around the age of four uh one, one doll leaves the room and then another doll hides a, a cherished object somewhere in the playhouse and uh then you ask the kid you know where when this when this other figure comes back where is he or she going to look for the the object it's only once they can develop the concept of another person holding a false belief that they can give the correct answer which is he's going to believe it, it was where he where it, where it last was before he left the room so yeah i mean rem, remind me i i think we while there's some possible basis for a very rudimentary theory of mind in other primates i mean i think there's some something like deception it's not the it, it's still somewhat controversial to call it deception right i mean i think we still don't yeah. think that other primates have a proper theory of mind. Is that correct? Yeah. That, I mean, it's an evolving field. And in fact, only in the past two or three years, um, have there been studies suggesting that chimpanzees can represent false beliefs, at least to the extent of being able to shift their gaze towards where the object is actually going to be, sorry, where the, to where the object will, uh, they think the object will appear from the perspective of the other person. But mm -hmm. so far, at least, and I was reading a review on this recently from Laurie Santos and colleagues, and so far, at least the picture is that even though if you use 
clever experimental techniques, you could get some hint that they can track false beliefs, at least in behavior, in, the, in, in terms of being able to act upon those and use those to guide behavior. It seems like there is a gulf there from the best experiments on chimps to humans. There's quite a gulf. Um, right. And this is not human adults. This is, as you say, kids age around four. And what's really interesting there is that if you go back, the, the, that field of research, that field on animal theory of mind was kicked off by this famous paper back in the 70s, which just had the title of Does the Champ Chimpanzee Have a Theory of Mind? And going back to that paper, you, what, what the authors of that paper meant by theory of mind was the ability to think about other people's mental states, but also the ability to think about your own mental state. That term theory of mind has kind of got used most often in the literature to be about other people. Yeah. What's interesting now, I think, with this rise of work on metacognition is that we're starting to think, okay, maybe this is just a more general computational capacity that subserves not only thinking about other people, but also thinking about ourselves. Yeah, this is, this is really interesting. And this is, this is a place where it does at least make a, a point of contact with the self that I often denigrate as illusory. I mean, there's this sense that our sense of our, our, our representation of ourselves in social space and in the world is of a piece with our concrete representation of others as others, right? That this really indelible sense of self and other emerges together kind of at a single cognitive brushstroke. And when, you know, as many people can attest in, you know, experiences in meditation and, you know, with psychedelics, when that boundary between self and other erodes, it, you know, it erodes, again, it's kind of a single boundary where you're, if you're not really reifying self, you're not quite reifying other in quite the same way. Hmm. In, in the normal course of events where we, we feel like ourselves and surrounded by other minds, it does seem intuitive to me that we're doing something quite similar when we're representing other minds and, re re and, and reflecting on our own. I mean, it's just we're, we're thinking about the same kinds of things, and it's the angle of our gaze that is different. But it's, it's, and this goes to many other results in neuroscience when you think of you know, the, the mirror neuron research and just you know, how, how is it that we interpret the behaviors of others when you, you, know, you see someone reaching for an object, you, you, have, you, you understand their intention in a way that maps on to you know, what it's like to be you doing more or less the same thing, reaching for objects of, of that kind. There's a kind of mirroring component here in the way we, um, we understand other people's behaviors. And it, it is the research thus far, you know, I, I think it's appropriate to be somewhat skeptical of just how much has been made of the mirror neuron research, but it certainly seems that there is a kind of self-mapping uh, that is the basis for our understanding the behavior of others. Yeah, I, I think there's, there seems to be a lot of circumstantial evidence surrounding that linkage. It's really hard to pin it down. Um, and what I find fascinating and somewhat frustrating is, you know, can we cash that out in a more computational terms, like what is that system really actually doing, assuming it is a system that is, as you say, building a model of someone else and also building a model of ourselves. But it does seem like that similar brain networks are involved. And we recently did a meta-analysis of all the studies of brain imaging studies of metacognition and compared that to 
classical theory of mind networks. And there, there was interesting overlap in regions of the medial prefrontal cortex. And we know, for instance, in neurodegenerative diseases like dementia, decline in self-awareness is often accompanied by decline in uh, social cognition as well. And developmentally, they seem to go hand in hand in children. So there's a lot of kind of, there does seem to be a symmetry there. And I'm attracted to that symmetry. I just think it's hard to find a good way. And we are thinking of trying to do this, but it's hard to find a good way of directly comparing the kind of computations that might underpin self and other evaluation. Yes, yeah, so we've just discussed that theory of mind is the, the necessary precursor for deception, because it's not until you understand that other people have beliefs and, and representations uh, that you can then manipulate those beliefs and representations strategically uh, with an awareness of uh, that this is a, a likely way to produce a, a desired effect in their behavior. But then there's this um, question of self-deception, which um, again is a somewhat controversial topic scientifically. It's, there, there are paradoxes that await us when we try to think of self-deception as being truly analogous to the deception of others, because then you're left with this quasi-Freudian picture of part of you consciously deceiving some other part of you. So the, the part of you that is yeah. in the deception business must know the truth in order to strategically hide <laughs> it or, or, or distort it uh, for the rest of you. How do you think of self-deception or the, f- the phenomenology of being you know, flagrantly wrong about one's inner life or outer behavior in ways that um, invite this, this analogy to deception? You know, we, we do often summarize it as self-deception or, you know, willful ignorance. I mean, the willful part of it is perverse uh, and, you know, inscrutable from a cognitive point of view. Um, wh- where does that fit into the discussion of metacognition? Yeah, it's, it's interesting in terms of how that might connect to this notion of belief decoupling from accuracy or be- confidence decoupling from performance because i think that is something we do see routinely in many studies people's metacognition isn't very good they are sometimes confident that they've got the right answer even though it's clearly wrong and we know that there are all these biases in belief and confidence that people like daniel kahneman have famously documented i think that one place it connects there to the discussion we were just having on theory of mind is that we model or we create narratives to explain the behavior of others. That's part of the, the, the depth of mental state inference that we can do that. We can say, well, they must have ignored me in the street because of you know, what I did yesterday or something like that. There's a kind of like a, a narrative that we create about the thought processes going on in other people's heads. And we seem to create a similar self-narrative and that can cohere more or less with reality. And when it decouples completely, then we're in the realm of psychosis or confabulation. Mm. So I think that there are, you know, we can start building up a story about why beliefs or narratives might decouple from what is the ground truth of our behavior or how we appear to others. What I think is really interesting about your your question is that I, ha- that I hadn't really thought about before is that does that then in some sense require a system to also know the truth internally? And it's not clear to me that that is 
the case. Although I think there could it could be possible that that is the case in some circumstances. So we've done a bit of work. This was work led by a former postdoc of mine, Dan Bang, who has been really interested in this problem he calls private public mapping, which is effectively how do we take our private beliefs and convert them into what we say to others. And so his example of this is, you know, what do you say to a kindly aunt who's given you a terrible Christmas present? And, you know, you don't want to hurt their feelings. So you say an untruth, but you, you do this strategically. And we studied that in the context of metacognition by being able to track using brain imaging, the confidence that was being formed at any given moment, because we have a fairly good understanding now of the neural correlates of, con- of confidence in individual decisions. But then we required subjects to strategically adjust the confidence they communicated to their partners in um, a collaborative game. And what we found was that there was a distinct, there were distinct networks involved in this private sense of confidence. How do I feel about my performance now? And another part of the prefrontal cortex was engaged when they had to strategically adjust that to communicate to the other person. So that would be it's not quite deception, but it's some kind of strategic mapping between, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, this kind of private feeling of, of what's going on and what we're trying to communicate to others for the purposes of strategic manipulation. Um, so it would be super interesting to know whether we're at some level doing that to ourselves, that at some sense, that same general circuit for strategic manipulation of others is also working under the hood for ourselves. And I don't know of any work on that. Yeah, well, when you look at the structure of much of our thought, it is conversational. I mean, we are, we are talking to ourselves much of the time as though there's someone in us who is listening, right, who needs to be told certain things. Otherwise, you know, mm-hmm. much of our discursive thought is totally superfluous, right? You know, I mean, why do you, why, why does part of you say anything to the rest of you as though the rest of you isn't aware of the thing that's being said. You know, if you, you know, like if I'm looking for an object in, on my desk and I say, you know, I, when I spot it, I might say, oh, there it is, right, to myself, yeah. you know, silently with the, the voice of the mind. But if I'm the one to see it, right, why, who am I telling, oh, there it is, right? I mean, who, who needs that further linguistic information when I, I, the, the one who is in possession of the eyes that have seen it, are, you know, is looking at it in that moment. And so, so much of our thought is dialogical uh, that mm-hmm. one could imagine a, a similar process is happening. We, you know, we're, we're, the thoughts are tumbling out our mouths when we're speaking to others. And then when we shut our mouths, we keep talking to ourselves about more or less everything. Yeah. And I'm, I'm very attracted to the position that Chris Frith holds on this that in a sense and this comes back to the conversation about an evolutionary story of metacognition that why did we start building this this self-narrative this metacognitive awareness of what we're doing in the first place and one plausible reason for that is that we need to communicate to others not only about things in the world which we think other animals can do at least on a rudimentary basis in terms of like alarm calls and so on but we need to communicate about our mental states or our mental impressions of things in the world mm. and chris has uh, done some beautiful work on this in the lab showing that people's estimates of confidence and certainty and whether they've made errors and so on are incredibly useful in collaborative situations so 
a nice real world example of this is two referees on a um, soccer field conferring um, about what they've seen. They might well be sharing, you know, okay, I was kind of sure about this, but not so sure about that and so on. So there's this kind of natural currency of strength of belief. And that requires some meta level assessment of our mental states, our, our visual impressions and so on. And you could easily imagine that something similar was happening in pairs of hunters out hunting back in our evolutionary history and so on. So I do, I am attracted to this idea that metacognition grew up in, within a social context and to serve a social purpose. And that in a sense, what we're left over with in our private moments is the continuing running of that machinery, even when no one else is around. Mm. The disposition to more finely calibrate one's confidence in one's beliefs is obviously trainable. I mean, there are areas of culture that do this better than others. I mean, science is the preeminent example of where we become epistemologically humble. It's ironic that scientists are often charged with arrogance, but when science is actually working, there's no place where you see more epistemic humility, you know, where, where you know, someone specializes and specializes and specializes to the point where they're, they're basically unwilling to express uh, deep confidence about anything outside the, the narrowest spotlight of their specialization. And this is what's so disastrous often when you see scientists trying to communicate science in a, in a general public forum and they, they hedge and caveat absolutely everything so that <laughs> yeah. you know, the general public comes away thinking scientists don't know a damn thing about anything yeah. you know, from climate change on down. Many people will have heard the phrase, the, the Dunning-Kruger effect, to um, describe what it's like when you don't know much about a field and just, just how many gradations of confusion persist within it. You're often at the beginning, you know, when you're, when you're, you're relatively ignorant of the details, you're, you tend to be overconfident in your understanding. And as you, get, as you understand more and more, you become uh, more and more humbled by the reality of all that you don't know, so that there's this uh, kind of perverse anti-correlation between statements of confidence and actual knowledge, actual expertise that uh, exists there. But, you know, that this just, it proves that this is trainable, at least to some degree, that you can learn through feedback, you know, when your wrongness is demonstrated again and again in conversations with people who know more or just based on other kinds of collisions with the evidence of one's own errors, you can get better at hedging your bet. And I think even, even just invoking the various gambling frameworks can improve people's sense of their confidence. I mean, often when I'm arguing with somebody about any sort of fact, I will uh, translate it into explicitly into the terms of a bet, you know, just okay. So, how much mm -hmm. tell me? You're, 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 you're pretending to be very sure about X, Y, and Z here, but how much of your net worth would you be willing to wager on this being true? And then, then that seems to demand that other sorts of um, refinements of probability come online for most people. I mean, occasionally you get the completely crazy utterance that they would bet everything, but rather often it. it it seems to put them back on their heels and they actually start thinking about probability in a way that they weren't uh, the moment before. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think the thing that immediately comes to mind is the lovely work from Philip Tetlock on mm -hmm. kind of adjusting people's probabilistic 
sensitivity to to real world events and in a sense like learning over time from feedback to make sure we don't yo-yo too much around usually the upper ends the overconfidence end of the spectrum and i think there's an interesting space there with work on probability and how we the way that we apply beliefs to the outside world and how that connects to metacognition so the in a sense the focus of people like Philip Tetlock has been on how we estimate the probabilities of things happening in the world, like the fact there's going to be a new disastrous variant of COVID or whatever it is that might happen in the future or might not. And that is, I think, potentially part of a shared skill set to being able to apply the same estimates to oneself, but it might not be. And it's interesting. I, I there's there's not very many studies out there on this, but um, it's an interesting line to pursue. And w- so one one thing that we're interested in doing is, as you say, applying similar kind of training approaches to that have been developed in the field of probability calibration to estimates of confidence about our own memories or perceptions or decisions we make on the fly. And we we have found some evidence. Um, in the studies that we've run on the malleability of metacognition and how it can be improved by training and how that improvement might actually transfer to other areas of our lives so in a sense if we can make your better if we can make your metacognition better at one thing at one task because of its abstract nature then the hope is that it can become almost like rebooted more generally and that we gain a bit more self-awareness in lots of other areas of our lives. The only, the, the caution I would um, put on this is that there still may well be these persistent metacognitive blind spots. So it seems attractive to have this idea of a general self-awareness ability that we can train up, but mm. there's been some neat work uh, on particular topics. And one depressing set of studies is from the climate scientist, Helen Fisher, who's been looking at how we rate confidence in decisions about climate information. And she's found that people have systematically worse metacognition about that kind of information than they do about decisions about more general scientific topics. Mm. So there seems to be something about the emotive nature or the the denial related nature of climate change that seems to be shutting down our capacity to effectively realize when we might be wrong about something in that sphere. So there could be areas of knowledge like that, that just are pernicious in their resistance to uh, metacognitive training. Yeah. Judging from what I'm seeing in the world, I would imagine that um, anything related to vaccines would uh, show the same effect at this point. It's, uh, it's very interesting. Yeah, it, it seems that there, there are many landmarks on the path of progress here we could imagine. I mean, the, the, the first for me would be to have greater awareness about the kinds of situations in which one's self-awareness it will reliably fail, right? I mean, what, what do we know about the landscape of experience where it's uh, more often than not your metacognition is going to be unreliable or less reliable than it is in other situations? What, what do we know about that? Yes, absolutely. I think this is a, in a sense, one of them, not the only one, but one of the motivations for writing the book was 
to provide some meta meta cognition, like some ability to cultivate knowledge about how our self-awareness works, to make it a bit more transparent. And I guess to encourage people to think about it as a brain process like any other that can fail. It's not this infallible Cartesian introspective ability we have to kind of know our own minds at every point that it's just like any other part of the system. It can work well or it can work badly. So I think, I guess, adopting that attitude and learning a bit more about the cognitive science of um, self-awareness, I think, can help us start in our own lives, as I found myself uh, to some extent, to start taking that more outsider perspective. And in terms of particular situations, so one that has gotten some study in the lab is of stress. So we know that stress uh, can cause widespread changes in brain function, in particular in relation to higher cognition. So the kind of things that the prefrontal cortex is involved in. And so we end up with this more tunnel vision approach to getting things done, but lose perhaps the the reflective view of ourselves. And um, this has been corroborated by empirical data where if you, if you put people in a stressful situation, so often this is done using a pretty uh, mean uh, test of you tell people that they're going to have to go into a job presentation where they're going to be interviewed by people and they have to give a live speech beforehand. And that causes a period of stress while they're thinking about having to do that in half an hour's time. And during that half an hour, you then give them some other tasks to do. And when people have given these tasks um, that measure metacognitive ability, what's been found there is that people are usually okay at doing the low-level tasks. They can still remember things. They can still make perceptual judgments. But what is impaired when they're in those stressful situations is their metacognitive ability to monitor how well they're doing on those tasks. Mm -hmm. I think to circle back to the, I guess, the more general implications of this, that would suggest that we can be a bit more guarded about the potential impacts of stressful situations. It's hard. I think the paradox is that it's hard in the moment to apply that understanding, but at least we could perhaps after the facts be a bit more tolerant of people like my wife who comes to me and says, do you realize you've been, you know, really horrible to be around and so on. So it's that kind of, um, knowledge about how metacognition works that might start jolting us out of these situations. Yeah, we can be sure that grant writing is not the friend of metacognition. No. You just bracket no, exactly. the whole week that you're uh, working on that. Exactly. And I, I, and I think that, you know, another thing that comes to mind in terms of the, um, the more practical implications about learning more about how metacognition works as a brain process is I'm hopeful that there could be a more compassionate understanding of failures of self-awareness in a variety of brain disorders, psychiatric conditions. Mm. And so one that we've been studying quite a lot recently is dementia and Alzheimer's disease with colleagues at UCL. And just anecdotally, clinicians have known for a long time that metacognition is a key feature of Alzheimer's, that often people, the first sign, some of my clinical colleagues at UCL tell me that like one of the first signs that they kind of know in a consultation that someone has Alzheimer's is not necessarily the the scores on the memory test, which usually are, you know, obviously lower than the normal standard, but it's this, I guess, lack of 
awareness of having a memory problem and this is mm-hmm. a metacognitive failure not a not a memory failure and i think that it's quite easy especially if you're a family you know if 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 someone who has dementia is close family member it's quite easy to get frustrated with someone with not for not being aware of these changes for not making the necessary adjustments and and so on and i mean i certainly remember like my you know my when my grandmother had dementia and my grandfather used to blame her for get frustrated with not being aware of you know the 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 fact that she couldn't perform as she used to and i think that hopefully learning about the fact that what is probably going on there and we've still got a lot of science to do to understand it properly but what is probably going on there is the disease is not only attacking circuits in the hippocampus and and elsewhere that are important for encoding memory and retrieving memory but is it's also attacking the foundations of self-awareness itself so you get this double whammy of neurodegeneration which can start to i guess explain what's happening there on a science can start bringing evidence to the picture there which hopefully will mean people have more of an understanding of what might be happening it's still obviously awful and horrible but it might provide a bit more understanding of mm-hmm. why why that's happening yeah it's an interesting problem cognitively because the, the absence of data is often not represented at all right i mean it occasionally is and we can have something like the tip of the tongue experience right mm-hmm. where you're you're aware uh, that there's a lacuna in your cognition and you're you're seeking to fill it with the appropriate object but um generally speaking it's more like the blind spot i mean you're simply you know because there's no data coming from that region of the the retina you're not it's not being represented as the absence of data and so the, the whole regions of cognition could be closing down and unless the environment or other people are are continually hammering us with the evidence of our ignorance you could imagine that it's we could be the last to know in the end that we're we're not aware of specific things absolutely and and yeah personally i find that the idea of obviously you don't want any brain disorder is not something you'd wish to have but for me it feels more much more frightening i guess to have that possibility of that kind of fade out of self knowledge that if that were to occur, to occur then by def- by definition the paradox is you would never know about it mm-hmm. and in a sense like there's this strange situation where perhaps that is actually better for you and maybe it's better not to know um and in fact that's a conversation a practical conversation we've been having in the lab recently where we have been starting to think okay we now have this evidence this line of work that suggests we could intervene and perhaps boost metacognition boost self awareness in a way that might be useful might even be useful clinically and we haven't got to that stage yet but if we get to the stage of say running a clinical trial we're going to have to think about that in the same way that you would the side effect of any other drug that you were thinking of trialing because it could be that actually boosting self awareness in mid stage late stage dementia is not something you want to do because it could create unnecessary anxiety about what is mm-hmm. happening perhaps it's better actually not to know in 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 some cases well actually i mean this kind of consideration it seems to me extends all the way into healthy life right where it's just mm-hmm. it seems reasonable to ask what is the the normative level of metacognition 
in any situation. I think there are situations where we really don't want much metacognition. We really just want cognition. When you look at what it's like to perform well athletically, say, you know, that you have this learning period where you're you're learning how to hit a tennis ball or hit a golf ball or to ski or whatever, and, and you've got all of these thoughts and all of this, you know, excruciating metacognition about mm-hmm. your performance, you know, all of the things you're, you're, you now know you need to do and you're attempting to do them and you're noticing your failure to do them and you've got a dozen thoughts in your head as you're trying to execute the most basic motor movement and mastery of that skill becomes more or less synonymous with an unawareness of how you're accomplishing it. I mean, a true expert in the end is, is just doing something flawlessly without any conscious representation of all of the steps required to do that thing flawlessly. Uh, and the moment, one, the moment it becomes more conscious, more, more metacognitive and laborious, you, you notice a, a degradation in performance. So, and I guess there, and this, you know, this is not limited to athletics. This is really, or, or procedural memory. It, it seems, you know, it, it extends into one's emotional life too. It's like, a, you know, to be, you know, telling someone you love them and really just communicating love is the sweet spot. To be telling someone you love them and to be aware in many second order ways of yeah. how one is performing that act it seems to guarantee the a kind of awkwardness and a a mixed message being communicated in the first place i mean you like you, you that's precisely the moment where you don't want to be self-conscious so how do you how do you think yeah. about yeah. the sweet spot here it sounds like you're just describing the adolescent experience yeah, towards the yeah. <laughs> yeah adolescence yeah, can I extend mean, for uh you know four four score and seven is yeah. if i'm not mistaken <laughs> Yeah, uh, I, I, no, it's a fascinating topic. And I think that, you know, there have been some lovely studies showing exactly as you described that when you bring metacognition back online in situations of skilled performance, then it can be detrimental. So one nice line of work was on college golfers. So students who were excellent at golf and then they were brought into the lab and asked to do a series of make a series of putts and in some conditions they were asked to try and focus on how they were doing it so that they could then um, explain it to the experimenter afterwards on every Mm. single putt and in other conditions they were distracted by counting the beeps on a on a on a tape and as you might imagine the the focus on your performance created a detrimental situation because the intuition there is that we want to be in more of a flow state. We want to just be, once we've learned how to do something, we want to just be able to unroll that motor plan. And I think this speaks to something quite deep about how metacognition works because it suggests that it's not just epiphenomenal in the sense it doesn't just kind of give us this awareness of what we're doing. It's it's the reason it's there is to model our performance and to then perform a function to communicate it to others or to modify it in some way. And in a sense, like what might be happening there is that a bit like the machinery just continuing to run when no one else is around, it just might be having a causal impact, a, a downstream impact on the performance itself, just in virtue of being activated, um, that meta level model. And so I think that there's a really interesting balance there between yes for skilled performance you might 
ideally lose the lose any self-awareness at all of how you're doing it but then in order to intervene in order to to change in order to improve then in some sense you do need um the ability to access that meta model mm-hmm. and that's where at least for elite elite athletes coaches play a huge role and so in a sense the coach has replaced the metacognition of the athlete mm-hmm. to some degree because they're then able to give that outside perspective they don't they don't have to be as skilled as the athlete themselves and usually they're not because otherwise they would be in the the roles would be re- reversed but they do in some sense play that surrogate role of replacing the 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 the, the awareness that becomes lost yeah there's an interesting connection that you draw in your book between teaching and metacognition, which captures this experience that many people have had where you, you, you know, it's not until you have to teach something that you really overcome all of your delusions of how much you know and you fill in the gaps in your knowledge because you, you really have to. You can't fool yourself anymore that you have mastered a subject because when you actually go through the exercise of having to communicate it to others, all of the the gaps in your knowledge become you, know, you just you can't navigate around them. You have to fill them in order to successfully accomplish the, that act of communication. And 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 if and until you attempt that, you really can think you have mastered the topic. So um, say so that's that seems like another good circumstance of of training the increase in metacognition. I mean, I guess they're you know insofar as metacognition is generally something we want to increase, you know, with, you know, uh, modulo those situations where we want to be able to transcend it and just uh, flow, having to teach others things and, and get them to find a path to knowledge that may be slightly different than the one we followed ourselves does force upon a person greater powers of, of metacognition. I mean, you just have, you have to you have to have some sense of what you know and 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 the degree to which you know it, because you're otherwise you're you're going to be continually walking across a minefield that is liable to expose your ignorance uh, in the act of teaching. How do you how do you think about engineering a circumstance where we get better and better at knowing what we know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I I completely agree that teaching has this dynamic where there should be this virtuous cycle of because we're forced to lay our cards on the table we can't hide behind misplaced feelings of confidence in our knowledge then that should provide this rapid self-correction and i guess the 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 idea there is that as as you described that because there are some situations where there are these illusions of fluency um, these knowledge illusions where we think we know how to explain how the economy works or how a zip works or how you know we 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 um hit a tennis ball for instance then as soon as we might have high confidence in that knowledge so we think everything's lined up internally but as soon as we're forced to communicate that to someone else then the fact that we are confident about it needs to come down in order to match the miserable failure at being able to explain that to someone else. So in a sense, it, it provides this natural route for recalibration, but it also, I think, provides this broader opportunity for a third-person perspective on ourselves. So by teaching, in a sense, we almost become forced to become our own coaches because mm. we, and I find this often when I um, 
teach undergraduate lectures is that I think, okay, I, I just need to put this together. Like this is in my field. I should be able to do this. It's no problem. But then I realized there's actually one area that, you know, I'm going to try and explain it to them, but I really should go back and do some more reading and, you know, make sure I've got this secure in my own head before I start committing it to paper or putting it on a PowerPoint slide. And I think that that cycle can, that, that can all happen before we even get into the classroom as teachers or before we even informally try and explain someone to someone else. So it's this kind of being forced almost to like put our cards on the table means that we have to take more of a third person perspective on what we know and don't know. And there was some really clever experimental work done by Asher Koryat, who's a leading metacognition researcher in Israel. And he, he demonstrated this, the power of a third person perspective for disabusing us of these illusions of fluency or illusions of confidence. And the way he did this was put one group of people in the lab who did a memory test. And after every decision, they rated their confidence in whether they're going to get it right out loud. And then he had another group of people watch the video of those subjects doing this memory test. And instead of playing them the confidence ratings, they asked this people who were watching on to also rate how confident they think those people will be. Uh, how confident they were that the people in the video were going to get the answers right or wrong. And what was interesting is that the people doing it themselves thought that when they were faster with the answer, they were more likely to get it right. And so they Mm. rated it with higher confidence. But the people watching the video thought the opposite. They thought, well, that person's thought for a long time about that answer. And so probably it's going to be right. So I'll rate that with high confidence. And the people watching on were the ones who were right. They, they, They got the relationship correctly. Whereas the people who were actually doing the task themselves had fallen foul of this illusion of fluency. And so they were rating things with high confidence, even though they were wrong. So it's just this kind of like really nice demonstration of just a very simple shift in perspective can have real, real benefits for, um, for self-awareness, for metacognition. Mm. Yeah, it seems there's a few variables here that can sharpen up our, our commitment to metacognition, if not the the metacognition itself, uh, and and one is certainly the prospect of public embarrassment, right? Because I mean, we all <laughs> yeah. know what a figure of comedy one becomes when when one's confidence in one's performance becomes out of register with with one's actual performance. I mean, that's that, you know all the comedy wrought of a character like um, the one R- Ricky Gervais played in the in the Office, right? I mean, that's <laughs> that's the mm-hmm. you know the the ultimate example of someone who's confident about everything and failing, you know, on 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 all counts. Yep, and it's hilarious and mortifying, and um, yeah, also just yeah the, the the prospect of you know losing money or not win, not winning money. I'm I'm thinking of those that game show. Um, I think you they must have some version of it in England, but there's I think in 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 the U.S. it was Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Yeah, and you're you're asked questions, and um, you have recourse to calling a friend or asking the audience. For advice uh, on on you know you can you can play that card you know each of those cards I think once in in the episode uh, and it's just it's interesting to see those moments where someone was reasonably sure they knew the right answer but then they go to the audience or go to a, go to a friend and they get some you know divergent opinion and then they're they're then they have have this second order consideration I mean, how likely is it that my belief that you know, a certain historical fact is so 
would be at odds with you know a crowd of a hundred people where you know sixty five percent of them think the opposite, right? You know, it's, it's that that kind of you know holding yourself up to the, the the mirror of public consensus there is interesting psychologically because then you you just have to engage a a very different probabilistic calculation. It's like how how likely is it that sixty five percent of this room is wrong about this thing that I think I'm right about? And yeah, you could just you triangulate on yourself in that way. No, absolutely. Yeah, and I think who wants to be a billionaire, who wants to be a billionaire is a exquisite test of confidence calibration. Um, mm-hmm. We do we do have in the UK, um, and it's interesting also thinking about what we were talking about before on theory of mind, because then when you throw it out to phoning a friend or throwing it to the audience, you're you're engaged in this in that game. You're being tested on two fronts you're not only being tested in terms of assessing your own knowledge you're trying to assess okay has this person i've just rung up also got the um knowledge base to give me the answer here and that's not usually easy to infer from a simple statement and so absolutely i think the these situations where it becomes the the sharp end of the impact of metacognition and to some extent theory of mind as well become manifest in in real life. And one other scenario that's similar to who wants to be a millionaire that I talk about in the book is the SAT test in in the States. Mm-hmm. And until fairly recently, until, until 2016, the test had this multiple choice. Um, well, maybe it still does, but it had this ability to decide whether or not to skip a question. And there was some really lovely analysis done by some educational psychologists showing that your score on the SAT, just on a theoretical basis, before you even give it to someone for a test, is a mixture of both your underlying ability in that subject, but also your metacognition, your ability to effectively track your confidence so that you can decide whether or not to skip the question. Yeah, because you, you get penalized for guessing. Right, right, yeah. right, exactly, exactly. And they did, apparently, when I was researching for the book, they've now stripped that out. Or you get, um, I should say you get penalized for guessing wrong, right? So there's-, there's Yes, yes. Some, if you're truly exactly. guessing, there's- there's going to be um, a, uh, I forget if it's five answers or four answers, but let's say it's four, then there'll be, you know, a, a one fourth chance that you're going to guess right. But you'll be, uh, if you're, if you're penalized, it'll, they, they can, they can zero out the positive effect of guessing if you're guessing randomly. Right, exactly. And it turns out that, yes, that having good confidence calibration is an added feature of doing well on a test like that. Yeah. And maybe that's a good thing. Maybe as a society, we want to be selecting people who do have good confidence calibration but i don't think this was a this was a unintended as far as i could figure out side effect of that scoring rule yeah yeah there, I, I, the interaction with intelligence is interesting and and maybe complex or it may, maybe situation dependent but at least anecdotally many people believe they have discovered that smart people are often spectacularly wrong because they come up with more and more clever ways of justifying their confirmation bias or whatever other errant heuristic they've used to to arrive at the wrong conclusion. They, they become better lawyers for their for the status quo of their assumptions than less intellectually agile people are. Right, and, uh, right. You yeah, know, and so then you certainly see this in science as well. I mean, people who have a theory that is more and more elaborate and the intellectual hoops that they are creating and jumping through to 
is really impressive. But then there's be, always a slight, <laughs> you slight have hidden to be, worry. You have to be pretty brilliant to keep adding epicycles to your wayward theory. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Steve, it's been fascinating to uh, talk about your work, and I wait the uh, the next conversation with pleasure when you can come back and tell us w- when we actually know more and more about self-knowledge. Well, it's been a real pleasure, so thanks for inviting me, Sam. 